The following is message number three of a Southeast Blending Conference held in Atlanta, Georgia on the evening of March 25th, 2017. The title of the message is Fighting the Good Fight and Finishing the Course. And the speaker is Brother Ron Kangas. For a good fight. Amen. Let's fight the good fight. Amen. As good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Amen. Then let us be motivated to finish the course. Living an overcoming life, according to 2 Timothy, is to be one with the apostles' teaching and one with the triune God, to be filled with the word of God as the breath of God, and to faithfully fulfill our portion our function as members of the household of God. Overcomers are not super. Rather, they are believers who allow the overcoming Christ to live in them his overcoming life. And by living his overcoming life in them, to make them his reproduction as the victorious overcomers. I find this very encouraging. It lifts a heavy burden. It gives us a stand against the enemy who fears any believers who take this way, who fears the overcomers, because the overcomers will execute upon the enemy the Lord's righteous judgment on him. Amen. So we want to learn to live an overcoming life in the midst of our human situations, whatever they may be, and in the midst of the situation among the churches whatever they may be. And we do this eventually for one particular reason. We want our life to contribute to fulfilling God's purpose. Amen. We know that the Lord, as the Son of Man, on that day when we stand before him, will evaluate all of us, not for salvation. That is a gift. Eternal salvation is a gift of grace. What is at stake will be the coming kingdom. Will we enter into the Lord's joy or not? Will we be invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb or not? Will we reign as co-kings with Christ for a thousand years? All of these matters, to me, are motivating factors. So we are here on the bridge of time, 
in a situation ordained by God and we have the opportunity to make a basic decision that however we may earn our living, however we may fulfill our human responsibilities outwardly, we may settle the matter in our being before God. My living on earth is for your purpose and your will. Then we make a related decision, as we emphasized earlier, concerning living in the will of God. It's a very real situation because God does not manipulate. He does not create robots. He gives us some freedom to choose. We may choose to live a life mainly according to what God will allow us to do. Parents with growing children, the children may be teenagers, realize there will come a time when you have to let them do what they want to do. In the transitional stage, they may come and ask, Dad, may I do this? And I may realize, or a dad may realize, you don't really want to know what is in my heart concerning this. What do you want is my permission to do it. Well, you're not a little boy. You're not a little girl. You're approaching legal adulthood. So I would say, just, it's okay. You want to do that, it's okay. I don't want to live according to God's okays. Many brothers made a big mistake in their thinking, in their fellowship with Brother Lee. They would be set to do something. Something in the work or go somewhere. They would come to Brother Lee for fellowship, <clears throat> really not knowing the kind of person he was. He never controlled anyone. He never told anyone what to do. At the most, for those that were open to him, he would say, you need to pray. But for those who came to him, set to do something, he was aware of that. So he would let them state their intention, and he would say, good, go ahead. And some, due to lack of enlightenment, would say, Brother Lee agrees with me. Brother Lee is one with me. You couldn't be farther off. Brother Lee is expressing the way of God. You're determined to do this. You're set to go there. 
you're more than obsessed with this person. You want to marry this person no matter what. The Lord is not going to restrict you. He may say, just do what you want. The vast majority of Christians, knowingly or unknowingly, live this way. But God permits. That is not what the New Testament means by the will of God. That is not what Paul meant when he said he became an apostle through the will of God. That is not the perfect will of God mentioned in Romans 12. That is not the will revealed in Ephesians 1. That is not the will mentioned in Ephesians 5, where Paul said, do not be ignorant, but understand what the will of God is. So the first step in living an overcoming life, according to 2 Timothy, is to settle the matter in personal fellowship with the Lord and setting your will by making a decision. Lord, I choose your perfect will and only your perfect will. I will settle for nothing else and nothing less. When we make this kind of commitment to the Lord, he is now free in our life to be able to do whatever's in his heart concerning us. One excellent prayer, one of the simple prayers that I have learned and practiced according to the Lord's leading is to ask the Lord, Lord, what is in your heart concerning me? I ask you, Lord, please carry out whatever is in your heart concerning me. Please do whatever you will, whatever you want with me. This is a person living in the will of God. Only he knows among the seven billion plus how few persons there are on the earth. We love, we honor, and we receive without question all believers in Christ Jesus. We don't interrogate anyone. We have the Lord's table tomorrow. It's the Lord's table, not ours. God in Christ has received you. We receive you. Nevertheless, we realize due to the fallen situation in organized religion, 
very, very few Christians really care for God's good pleasure, the desire of his heart and his will. And very few have prayed in the way we suggested, Lord, I choose. When I made that decision, as I was about to leave Princeton, New Jersey, the Lord began to come in and negate almost everything I had been living for at that point, all my expectations to be a minister in a denomination, to advance in a certain way according to whatever capacity I had. He began to close one door after another after another. Until there's hardly anything left. The only thing I knew was leave religion altogether, pack up the little that you have, drive out to California, and you'll find God's will. <clears throat> Before I did that, I had an opportunity in the mornings to study Ephesians carefully in the Greek and in the English. I was familiar with the words in the book. I just didn't know what they meant. And I came to chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, which I would do well to read to you and to enlighten all that they may see what the economy of the mystery is, which throughout the ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, the multifarious wisdom of God might be made known through the church according to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I gasped in amazement at these verses. And it was very clear to me that I had no idea what any of this meant. I certainly did not know what eternal purpose was. And spontaneously there was a prayer. Lord, the man who can show me what these verses mean, I will follow that man, meaning I will follow his teaching and his ministry. It's just a fact. I was an excellent, an excellent the theology student at Princeton. I got an, an award for it. I had a big library, but I realized I can trust no one's teaching. I cannot give myself to any of this. Well, now I'm in Oakland, California. And I met a brother who had just come into the church in San Francisco. 
He told me about local churches, about a man named Witness Lee, a co-worker of Watchman Nee, and that he was based in Los Angeles. And he gave me literature. One was a message on the ground of the church. The other was a little magazine called The Stream. I was intrigued by that. I opened it up and the major article was entitled God's Purpose for the Church in three parts. The second part expounded these three verses from Ephesians 3. So I, when I read that, I began to see God's purpose. Then I read the message on the ground of the church, the local church. And I realized I simply have to be in a local church. So I went to my first church meeting in San Francisco, 99% Chinese speaking. <laughs> it did not matter at all. It never mattered. I'm not looking for a certain racial group, a certain ethnic group. I don't care who is here. I don't care what your background is, what your race is, what your color is. I have only one question. Is this the church? Amen. Then I am home. Amen. This was the beginning of knowing God's will is that Christ would have the first place in all things. God's will is to have the church as the body of Christ. And God's purpose is his plan according to his will to build up the body of Christ, to prepare the bride for Christ, and to bring in the kingdom of God. That was the beginning. It was the truth. It was the truth concerning God's purpose, concerning God's will that captured me. And the first two verses from the New Testament, the Lord opened to me in response to this, were the following. In John 14, in my father's house are many abodes. I go to prepare a place for you. And I realized intuitively the father's house is the church. And I'm finally home in the place prepared for me. Amen. The other verse was from Matthew 13 concerning the parable of a merchant who really knew what good pearls were. And he was searching for excellent pearls. And he found one of the highest value, the pearl of great price. And he sold all that he had and bought it. 
And I realized this pearl is the church. I have found the pearl. The only reasonable thing to do is to pay the full price to be part of this pearl. After I had been in the Lord's recovery for a while, I considered, Lord, why am I here and so many of my friends and companions, very serious brothers in the Lord, why are they not here? Why are they not interested? And I temporarily concluded it's because I was seeking but not long after that, the church was pray reading certain verses in what we called morning watch at that time. And one of the verses was on Romans. It says, there is none who seeks God, not one. And I had to repent and say, Lord, I'm not here because I was seeking. I am here because of God's mercy. Amen. Yes, we do seek him. But there's a hymn. It's not in our hymn, though. It's a very good hymn. I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew. That. He was seeking me, not I was seeking him. So once the Lord's mercy, with its indescribable tenderness, touches you, the Lord doesn't explain. He just said, I want you here. And by my mercy, I brought you here. Almost all of my generation from the middle 60s left the recovery. I was just torn apart again and again. Why am I still here? Not because I'm absolute, not because I'm a seeker, but because God is merciful. Amen. I just worship the Father for his mercy. Amen. So in response to such mercy, how can I, how can we not choose to do the will of God, to live in the will of God? How can we not choose to live for the fulfillment of God's purpose. I had quite an education, but now I'm in the church as a brother and brothers get jobs and work. You know what my first job was? My first job required me to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning and to deliver the Los Angeles Times. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And when I applied for a teaching job, the principal asked me, what are you doing now? I felt, I'll tell him the truth. I said, I'm delivering the LA Times. And one morning, I had Newsflex all over my shirt, newsprint on my hands. I went to the corporate morning watch, and a dear brother came out and he said, beginning as a newspaper boy, praise the Lord. And when this principal was interviewing me, I told him. And I said, I got pretty good at throwing the papers over the roof of the car, <laughs> throwing them through the window, and we compared throwing styles. <laughs> so everything from the time I was 16 until the time I was 27, on a course to be a minister in Christianity, as, as a result of choosing God's perfect will and refusing his permissive will, instead of ending my life as a prominent minister in a big congregation, I came into a local church, multicultural, multiracial, composed of humble people, and started out throwing newspapers over my car roof. I thank the Lord. And so I want to be faithful to you to let you know, because we're not manipulating anyone. When you choose the perfect will of God, it will cost you everything. But like the one hymn says, never speak of sacrifice. You have the sense, although it costs me everything, like Paul, it was all done anyway. Look what I got after 50 years. The all-inclusive Christ, the consummated triune God, and thousands of precious brothers and sisters all over the earth. Amen. And the privilege to serve. My only regret was when I was saved just before I was 16, and I realized, I said to myself, there's another person in me. I had to sense it had to be the Lord, but I had no one to help me. Now, someone 16 who calls on the Lord and a couple of days later realizes there's a person in you, you go to a serving one. And they can tell you, yes, the Lord is in you as the spirit. Where is he? He's in your spirit. He's mingled with your spirit. Then he can guide you so that the age of 16, instead of later, you can decide, I'm just a young person, I gotta finish high school, I need to get education or training or whatever it is, but I choose the perfect will of God. Amen. I choose to live 
for God's purpose, and I aspire to live an overcoming life. So we're considering that overcoming life, and we saw two aspects this morning. It begins with a two-way making of a deposit. First, we commit our whole being as a deposit to the Lord. As Paul did, because we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he is able to guard our deposit until that day of his coming. Okay, no one can make this decision for you. It needs to be your own personal response in relation to the light shining, the Lord's life flowing, his mercy reaching you, his love constraining you, and you make a decision. Yes, young person, or those of all age, this will put you on a journey, we'll see this when we get into the outline, that you never expected to take. A journey mapped out by God just for you. And on the one hand, It'll cost you. On the other hand, you will be blessed beyond description. Then in response to our making a deposit, God himself makes a deposit. He commits to us the process and consummated triune God himself, the opened and properly understood word He's prepared to saturate us with life, to make us a new creation, and commit to us, as he did those early disciples who were in their 20s, the responsibility of carrying out God's purpose on the earth. What a privilege. And then we saw that those living in overcoming life keep the faith, they're very clear concerning the central matters of what we believe and how the faith, what we believe, is related to God's economy in faith. God's economy being his plan and arrangement to dispense himself into us to fulfill his purpose. Now tonight, we come to two other matters. Paul is the pattern in every aspect of being a God-man and of being an overcomer. And this pattern shows us we can only have the assurance that we have overcome until the end. We've seen this happen in lives positively. There's just a realization no one can say right now, wisely, 
I am an overcomer. Because if you know yourself at all, 10 minutes after the meeting, while you're driving home, you may be an undergoer, <laughs> not an overcomer. So Paul in Philippians 3 said, I haven't attained, I haven't arrived, I'm pressing on. But what an encouragement to his spiritual child, Timothy, to say, Timothy, I kept the faith. You know I did. I have fought the good fight. You know I did. And I'm especially burdened on, I have finished the course. So Timothy, Paul might be saying, since I finished the course, it's time for me to depart. I've already learned to be with Christ is far better. Paul had been taken by some marvelous experience to the third heaven and to paradise. That's why he could say in Philippians, if I had to choose, I'd rather be with Christ. It's much better. But for your sake, for your progress and joy in the faith, I will remain. So I look forward to meeting Timothy. I hope we connect in the kingdom. I'd like to hear his testimony. How did that affect you? How could he forget the last words of his spiritual father? Timothy, I kept the faith. You suffered with me. You saw all the things that happened. All those that abandoned me. When I stood before Caesar, no one was with me except God himself. I kept the faith. Timothy, you know the entire ministry from beginning to end was one fierce fight. But I fought a good fight. It was a good fight, Timothy. Don't be afraid. And I finished my course. What those words put into you is not a vow, but an aspiration to be the same. I need to, again, some of you have heard this. My experience when I first saw Brother Lee speaking. I don't say here, I say saw. It was in the spring of 1967 in, in the, the Eldon Hall meeting place in Los Angeles on a Lord's Day morning and Brother Lee was standing there speaking and I was in awe. And two words kept going through me as I watched him. No self. No self. Only Christ expressed. My whole background nurtured the self. 
especially for gifted preachers. They glorified themselves in their speaking. The Lord said in John 7, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And I've never seen a minister of the word speak with no self, only Christ, spirit, and life. And deep within me was a respect for him. And although I knew nothing, there was a respect for all the steps he took to bring him to this point. I knew it wasn't easy. And then I prayed. I made a decision and I prayed. In the church only five months. Lord, I choose to walk in the same steps. Not to imitate him, that's phony. But to walk in the same steps that he walked in that brought him to this point. This is the effect of hearing words like, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. It puts something in you. There's an aspiration, Lord, I want to follow the same way that will have the same result. And Paul helped Timothy to realize, Timothy, I once wanted to murder you all. I was one with the devil. I was breathing out murder. There is no greater sin than the sin I committed against the church which Christ purchased with his blood. It's all mercy, Timothy. If the Lord can do this in me, he can do this in you and in every other believer. That's the message. Not I'm a hero, exalt me. There are no heroes in the body of Christ. So now let's look into these two matters. I have fought the good fight. Point A says, a proper Christian life involves fighting the good fight against Satan and his kingdom of darkness and for the interests of God's kingdom. Okay, why is this necessary? Let me say why it's necessary, then I'll say something about when it's necessary for you. Because for a good number of you, it's not necessary yet. I'll tell you why. God has a will. God has a purposeful determination. And there is a rival being in the universe who has a counter will, who led a rebellion in the angelic realm, determined 
to make himself equal with God. And in Isaiah 14, we're told five times, he said, I will, I will, I will exalt my throne. So now there's another will. In direct opposition to God's will, in fighting against the doing of God's will on the earth. That is why there's war. But the, the rebel is a creature. There's not a second God. There's only one God. God will not lower himself as the creator to deal directly with a rebellious creature. Rather, he must have another creature to defeat the rebellious creature. And that creature is man created in his image and with his dominion. We were created, according to Genesis 1.26, in God's image to express him with his authority to represent him and to subdue the earth. That implies a war. The enemy somehow realized that we were, would be the means of defeating him. So he injected his evil nature into humankind and reproduced himself in all of us, making us little serpents. The Bible uses that expression, children of the devil. But then God sent his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And because he was in the likeness of the flesh of sin, when he was on the cross, he fulfilled the type of the bronze serpent. And God judged him in our place. And when God judged him, Satan was destroyed. Hebrews 2.14. Through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So God, through the man, our Lord Jesus, was victorious over the enemy. Now our responsibility as the church is to maintain the victory of Christ and to testify the victory of Christ <clears throat> to the enemy. Overcomers do this. According to Revelation 12, 11, we are accused by the devil day and night. But the overcomers, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of the testimony is not the testimony of your experience. It is our testimony to the enemy that he has been defeated by a Jewish man from Nazareth. Jesus defeated you, you creep, you serpent. Look who is on the throne, the God man, Jesus. And in his name, we rebuke you. We reject you. We judge you. We stomp on your head. This is how we fight, not for victory, 
We fight from victory and in victory. But according to the experience of life, with all of its stages, engaging in this warfare is something that we enter into when we're starting to mature in the divine life. So it will be the maturing saints that will take the lead in this. Those that are newly saved and newly young, don't worry, just stay under the protection of the armor of God on the body of Christ. I illustrate this way, as I've done before. My mother told me about this because it goes back to when I was just barely five years old. One morning, I was listening to my favorite radio program, Happy Hank. And I was playing with Lincoln Logs. You may have to do a Google search to find out what Lincoln Logs were. So I had the Lincoln Logs on the floor listening to Happy Hank, and then Happy Hank was interrupted with an announcement. The invasion of Normandy had begun, describing the material in use. And I went running to my mother. I said, Mommy, Mommy, planes, boats, guns, soldiers. And she knew. She knew what was going on. Her being would ache for the price that would be paid. But I was only five. And when you're only five, it's okay to play with Lincoln Logs and listen to Happy Hank. But I'm not five anymore. I'm with others at Normandy. So the point is, some of these matters will be for your future. Don't try to be a hero. Don't try to sign up for special forces when you're only six years old. <laughs> Don't take on a responsibility prematurely. It is the body that will do the fighting. Amen. Now I'm gonna read through the points in the outline in this section almost immediately. But how do we fight? mainly in two ways. The first way is to offer the prayers of warfare, applying the victory of Christ to a, a situation. I remember a powerful season of prayer when the blended co-workers were together and we prayed with authority regarding the Middle East and regarding ISIS, that whole situation. 
So the Lord will lead the churches to pray the prayers of warfare, applying the victory of Christ to activities of the enemy. We're not gonna sit here passive and let the enemy have his way. We have the authority to bind him and to loose God's blessing. Amen. But there's a higher way of fighting. And that's illustrated in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel, it probably then was Judah, was facing a superior force. They were drastically overwhelmed. And so the king took the lead. He said, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are set on you. Then the Lord made known the strategy. Send forth the singers, send forth the trumpet players, and just praise the Lord. And they fought by praising, and the Lord dealt with the enemy. So we fight by praying, and we fight by praising. I believe the Lord in the years to come will, enlift, will lift our praise higher than we've ever known. Amen. And one other aspect of this. The Lord will marry the bride. And she'll have on a lovely wedding garment. And after a short period of time, he'll say something like this, dear, we're going on a trip. Where are we going? We're going to Armageddon. What are we gonna do there? Well, we're going to war. Well, what, what do you wear when you go to Armageddon? And he would say, dear, your wedding dress is your warrior's uniform. We know from 1 Thessalonians 3 that the Lord will present our hearts blameless before him. Blameless. So this in principle, what will happen? The bride will be there. The Lord may summon the enemy. Look at her. Look at them. You satanified them. You made them sinners. I redeemed them. I regenerated them. I transformed them. I glorified them. I find no defect in them. Now you examine them. You tell me. Does she have any defect? You'll have to say no. Then now I give to her the authority to deal with you. Amen. That's what's going to happen. That's why the overcomers will rejoice. Now the subpoints: a proper Christian life involves fighting the good fight. Okay, we read that point, B. Paul considered the ministry a warfare for Christ. Just as the priestly service was considered a military service, a warfare. 
And Paul wanted Timothy to realize this. You may be preaching the gospel, teaching the truth, shepherding the saints. Any action of ministry involves a battle. No one serving as a soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And the Greek word for life there is bios, meaning the physical life. So the Lord will want to untangle all of us. We have to take care of the affairs of our physical life, but all entanglement. I remember a number of years ago that our brother Benson was encouraging saints to consider serving in Europe with understanding and with love, he said, how about if you have a goal to get out of debt within the next five years, just to be out of debt, out of that one entanglement, so that you care for the things of this life, but you're not entangled by anything. A soldier has to be ready to respond immediately. This means that to fight the good fight for God's interests on earth, we need to clear away all earthly entanglements. Such a relief for life to be simplified, to have what we need with no entanglements, no debt, no overspending. I know what it is to get in it. I know what it is to be out of it. And I ain't going back there no more. <laughs> Okay. E, to war the good warfare is to war against the differing teachings and to carry out God's economy according to the apostles' ministry concerning the gospel of grace and eternal life for the glory of the blessed God. Now here is how Paul fought against the source of different teachings in the mind. It's in 2 Corinthians 10. He says this, for though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful before God for the overthrowing of strongholds. As we overthrow reasonings and every high thing rising up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought unto the obedience of Christ. When the battle is about the apostles teaching and about the truth, the warfare is not directly with demons. The warfare is with the mind. The reasonings and the thoughts in the fallen human mind are the source of rebellion. And inside the human mind, there are these fortresses, strongholds, rising up against God. So it may not look this way, but, but we're teaching the truth. There are times when we are dealing with the strongholds in the mind. 
because we know we traced the teaching from God to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the Apostles, the Apostles to us. Any other source comes from the self and comes from the enemy. So behind the different teachings is a spiritual power. And some of us, sisters and brothers alike, need to be trained to deal with this. One day, Aquila and Priscilla overheard a brother new in town, boldly preaching the gospel. He was eloquent and he was well-versed in the scriptures, but he wasn't clear about many things. So they invited him home for a meal and Acts says they expounded to him the way of God more perfectly. Not he, Aquila, did the expounding while, while Prisca did the dishes. They, as a couple, perfected Apollos. This involves the sisters every much as the brothers. I was in my office one day and an experienced, older, serving sister representing a group of such sisters came by and asked for fellowship. She said, can we sisters engage in spiritual warfare? We are caring for a life or death situation with a young sister, life or death. And I said, surely you can. You're in the body, you have the authority, you simply need to be covered and we will cover you. And they went and prayed. They dealt with the enemy and that sister's life was preserved and she was gained for the Lord. F, whenever we minister Christ to others, we find ourselves in a battle. Hence, we should be soldiers fighting for God's interests. To fight the good fight of the faith means to fight for God's New Testament economy. In particular, it is to fight for Christ as the embodiment of God and the church as the body of Christ. Now, Roman numeral two, I have finished the course. And I'd like to set before you one of the verses that we read and emphasize certain things. This is Paul speaking to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 24. And in the preceding verses, starting with verse 21, solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Gentiles, repentance unto God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now behold, I am going bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what will meet me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in city after city saying, bonds and afflictions await you. He was heading to Jerusalem, tried to help with that situation, and he knew afflictions were ahead. Then he said, but I consider my life, my soul life, of no account 
as if precious to myself. Satan told God concerning Job, all that a person has, he'll give for his life. Satan knows this. What causes Satan to fear the most is a person who does not love the soul life. He's willing to lose the soul life for the Lord's sake. So Paul says, I consider my life of no account as if precious to myself. There was something more precious to Paul than his life. In order that I may finish my course. That's what was precious. The course is the length of the journey or the race mapped out by God for you. We'll read the points. Each one of us has a journey. In the context of the body of Christ, which is corporate, there is a deeply personal aspect. We'll be rewarded personally. And that personal aspect is the course or the journey or the race that God has set for you. And we may give a simple definition of overcoming. To overcome is to finish your course. It's a very precious sense when you're witnessing a saint going to be with the Lord. And deeper than you realize, she's finishing her course in victory. We're sad to lose a dear one, but how can we not also thank the Lord? He or she finished the course. Maybe we thought the course should have been longer. It should have been different. But we're not the sovereign God. That's why, if I may say this, and I counseled the beloved brother in the same way, a little over a year ago, when I was alone as a widower, and the enemy was attacking to fill me with thoughts of death, Tell me widowers die in a year when they're your age. And I made a decision before the Lord and before him. I have not yet finished my course. Amen. I will not give in to death. Amen. And I wrote my beloved brother in a similar situation, said the first thing you have to deal with is the attack of death. Choose life. Amen. Always choose life. Amen. I think I should remain for a while, don't you? Amen. I think that's why God gave me quite a wonderful provision, don't you think? <laughs> for this reason. So Paul wanted to finish his course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. 
who solemnly testified the gospel of the grace of God. He wanted Timothy to have this kind of realization. Timothy had his own course. A husband and wife, they may be together for decades, but one finishes the course ahead of the other. Who are we to say? This is the will of God. This is what God wanted. He knows the cost. But there's something more precious than life itself. That is finishing our course in victory. Amen. There was a brother, James Barber, who went to be with the Lord at the age of 49 in 1984. He gave a message in around 1967 on consecration. And his brother was absolute. And he was illustrating his consecration, what he told the Lord, you can do anything you want with me. You could put me on a bed of cancer. Then at the age of 49, he contracted cancer that spread rapidly. In that same year, another co-worker, an elder in Los Angeles, Samuel Chang, went to be with the Lord. As we gathered at the grave site for Brother Samuel, Brother Lee was there and he said, these were two victors. Brother James was closely related to two brothers. I don't want to mention their names. I mentioned one, John Ingalls, because he's with the Lord. The other one is still here. Suppose the Lord miraculously healed him of his cancer. And then five years later, he's influenced by the others to depart. Which would you call love? taking him at victory in 49 or doing like he did for Hezekiah, give him more time, which was in vain. We need to respect and deeply honor the sovereignty of God over our life, over our destiny, over the race we're running, and just long to finish in victory. And we'll see tomorrow morning to finish with the assurance, the crown is there for me. Timothy, I've got it. I've got the crown. I fully believe these words would echo in Timothy his whole life. I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. Lord, I pray do in me what you did in my spiritual father. May I finish the course. As an illustration of how two brothers can be very closely related in the ministry and work, but have different courses, I refer to John 21. The Lord is talking to Peter. He says to Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and wherever you wanted to go, you went. When you're old, meaning really spiritually mature, 
Someone else will gird you and take you where you don't want to go. Then the text says the Lord was indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And Peter accepted that for himself. But you know, the thought is, okay, if I'm going to be martyred, then what about John? Shouldn't he be martyred? Shouldn't everybody be martyred? <laughs> Otherwise, it's not fair. <laughs> so he says, what about this man, John? And the Lord says, if I will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? So John has to live with this if. Then John writes, you know, the ancient people were the same as us. He said, this word circulated among the brothers that that disciple would not die. Jesus didn't say he would not die. Jesus says, if I want him to remain. And so here, the Lord comes and says, Peter, you'll be martyred. John might be raptured. If we really know the Lord's will and know the Lord and are persuaded he's able to guard our deposit, we will just say, Lord, I just want to finish my course. And I pray for John to finish his course. Do you think it was easy living another 30 years, seeing the degradation increase? His own brother was martyred in Jerusalem at a young age. Jerusalem was destroyed. The other apostles were martyred. He's in his 90s on an island in Patmos. There's more than one kind of martyrdom. There's physical martyrdom, of course, psychological martyrdom, spiritual martyrdom. I just ask the Lord, in effect, this is a prayer for you all. Lord, put in all my dear brothers and sisters the desire to finish their course. Amen. Just to finish it. Whatever it is, that's what overcomers do. It's not a sprint. I'm flat-footed and slow, so I'm glad it's not a sprint. And there's a verse in Micah that I find very encouraging because we may stumble and fall. But I love this verse in Micah 7. The writer says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. For when I fall, I shall rise again. Amen. And when I'm in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I have to say, it's been a long journey. I've fallen more than once. But I love this verse to stare down the enemy and say, shut your laughing mouth. Because when I fall, you know what happens. Resurrection life in me causes me to rise up again. Amen. And here we are on a Saturday night in Atlanta, and we all are rising up again. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah.
Okay, now the subpoints. A proper Christian life involves running the course for the carrying out of God's economy according to his eternal purpose. And in 1 Corinthians 9, that's what Paul is doing. He's running. We need to seek out the journey that the Lord has ordained and faithfully walk on it, paying any price to wholeheartedly continue on our journey until we reach the end. There's a personal side here. We need to seek out the Lord. Lord, what is the journey you have for me? And we do not know what the Lord may do. Another's pathway may intersect. The Lord cover you, but the Lord may decide at the time appointed to me, you're going to meet a sister from Kazakhstan and you will know what my will is for the rest of your life. That's part of the course. She has hers. I have mine. You have yours. Your son and daughters have theirs. We need to seek it out and treasure it and seek the grace to faithfully walk on it. See, the journey that the Lord has ordained for us is the race that we all must run. We need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Like the Apostle Paul, all Christians must run the race to win the prize. Not salvation in a common sense, but a reward in a special sense. We need to run the race with endurance, suffering the opposition with endurance and never growing weary or fainting in our souls. E, we run the Christian race by looking away unto Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Look away, oh, look away. Look to Jesus now today. Look away from everything unto Jesus. Look away from everything to him. Let's look away unto Jesus. And let me read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and point out a very touching matter. Therefore, let us also, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, put away every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race which is set before us, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, now we have a testimony of his experience, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. When the Lord was on the cross, suffering the shame, there was a joy set before him. 
far as I know, we are not told explicitly what that joy was. I can just share with you what I think it might have been. He knew that he was giving himself up for her, for the church. He knew that he was laying down his life for our redemption and to release the divine life for our regeneration. I believe that the joy set before him was a beautiful, radiant bride and a wedding feast. We have to have a vision. This is what keeps us running. The Lord Jesus in Hebrews 6 is called our forerunner. So he ran the race. He's in the veil, cheering us on, rooting for us, praying for us, interceding for us, shepherding us. You can make it. But there needs to be a joy set before us. We may be in the darkest, grimmest situation we've ever faced. On the race. Yet when we look away unto Jesus. Into his radiant face. And he transfuses his believing element into us. Then he causes us to see something. This won't last, my dear one. This will end. Look at the joy set before you. The wedding feast. The marriage dinner of the Lamb. Reigning with me for a thousand years. Keep on running. Just keep on running until you finish. Okay, point E says we run the Christian race by looking away into Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the author of faith, the originator, the inaugurator, the source, and the cause of faith. So don't beat yourself up if you can't believe. None of us is good at believing. Only God is a good at believing. Let him infuse faith into you. He's very good at this. Just ask him to do it. The faith of the believers is actually not their own faith, but Christ entering into them to be their faith. Our believing is our appreciation of Christ as a reaction to his attraction. So you look at him, he is so lovely in glory, and then you just, you just believe yourself out of this situation. There's a faith in you you've never known before. We need to look away unto Jesus with undivided attention by turning away from every other object. I hereby officially prophesy that the time is coming when many of our young people will love Jesus more than video games. <laughs> they will love him more than their, the latest iPhone 7 or whatever Apple is going to spring Okay? We're not going to just preach religious things at you and say, stop doing this, stop doing that. Rather, we're going to say, 
Just take a look at Jesus and see what will happen to you. I heard a young brother testify. He got dynamically saved. I think he was from Ethiopia. Wonderful testimony. And he told about his iPod. I just have a pad, no pod. And he was fellowshipping with the Lord and the Lord touched him and said, delete at least 700 tunes from your iPod. That wasn't religious. He was saved from a distraction. I'm not giving you an anti iPod message. I'm giving you a pro Jesus message. Don't try to change anything. Don't try to change the lives of any young person. Just encourage them to look away. How about we take 20 seconds just to look away? Look away into Jesus. Wow. Wonderful. Marvelous. Glorious. Oh, our Jesus. He's wonderful. I love him. I'm beside myself. Jesus, Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. When we look away into Jesus, he as the life-giving spirit transfuses us with himself, his believing element. Faith is a substantiating ability, the ability which we, by which we substantiate, give substance to the things unseen or hoped for. We must exercise our spirit of faith, our mingled spirit, to believe and speak the things that we have experienced of the Lord. In two or three minutes, many of you come to the microphone, speak in faith. Amen. I will fight the good fight. Amen. I will finish the course. Amen. I will run the race. I'm going to look away into Jesus. Amen. Let's speak in faith and crush the enemy tonight. Amen. Faith is in our spirit, which is mingled with the Holy Spirit. We do not regard, look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Christian life is a life of things unseen. 1 Peter 1, 8, 1, 8, whom having not seen, you love. And whom, though you see him not, yet believing. We are, either, we are either the most reasonable people or the craziest people on earth because we are madly in love with a person we've never seen. Amen. Lord Jesus, you're here. We don't see you, but wow, do we ever love you. Amen. And we believe in you. The degradation of the church is the degradation from unseen things to seen things. The Lord's recovery is to recover his church from things seen to things unseen. Jesus is the perfecter of faith, the finisher and completer of faith. As the completer of faith, the Lord Jesus continually infuses himself into us as the believing element and ability. When we look away unto him, he ministers heaven, life, and strength into us, transfusing and infusing us with all that he is, 
so that we may be able to run the heavenly race and live the heavenly life on earth. As we look away unto him continually, he will finish and complete the faith that we need to run the heavenly race. Let's all fight the good fight. Let's all finish the course. So pray or praise or sing for 30 seconds, then Brother Ted will direct the prophesying. Praise the Lord. Amen.